Let's turn our attention here to our text. This is Mark writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 25, and these are the words that he pens. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Three main points on your outline this morning. I've got a a few sub-points for you under point number two. would encourage you to take notes. I think you'll listen, process, understand better if you do. Point number one is this. God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. Therefore, have faith in God. Let me direct your attention back to your Bible. Look there. Look specifically at verses 20 through 22. As they, that's Jesus and his disciples, passed by in the morning. Let me press pause right there. Jesus has come and gone into Jerusalem a couple of times now. We suspect that Jesus is probably staying in Bethany, which is a small town right outside of city center Jerusalem. It's probably where Jesus and his disciples had spent the night this night. They've woken back up in the morning. This is the morning after Jesus cursed the fig tree. And Jesus and his disciples are again making their way into Jerusalem. And they pass back by this same fig tree. And what do they notice here? Well, they notice that the fig tree is withered away to its roots. And so Peter... Peter, who is oftentimes the mouthpiece, Peter is oftentimes the one who speaks on behalf of the disciples, he speaks up here, and he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, that was yesterday, has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Have faith in God. The fig tree, which we noted last week, it was all leaves and no fruit. That was was the reason that Jesus cursed the fig tree. He walked to the fig tree desiring to see fruit. It gave the appearance of bearing fruit because it was in full leaf. But when Jesus approached the fig tree, he saw that it had no fruit. It was all leaves, all show, all outward appearance without any inward fruit. This following morning, this fig tree has withered away to its roots. And the withered fig tree stands as a solemn picture of Israel's unfruitfulness. That's the the picture here. Remember we said last week that the fig tree is the textbook. Jesus is the teacher. And the textbook is teaching us something about faithless Israel about the unfruitfulness of the nation of Israel. God's set-apart, chosen, particular, special people. 
God had revealed himself to Israel in such a way as he had not revealed himself to any other surrounding nation. They were blessed beyond measure. They were given the oracles of God. God was with them. God rescued them and delivered them out of Egypt's bondage and and toward the promised land. He walked with them by day and by night. He spoke to the nation of Israel through the prophets who declared, Thus says the Lord, if anybody had light, if anybody had revelation, if anybody had nearness, if anybody had closeness to God, it was the nation of Israel. Blessed beyond measure, yet she took advantage of it all and was without fruit. And so the unfruitfulness of the fig tree is a solemn picture of Israel's impending destruction, the impending judgment that God would bring upon the nation of Israel. But there is, we should not confine our hearts and our minds just to the nation of Israel. There is a lesson. There are lessons for us, the church today, in this text. We should consider, are we bearing fruit Does our life demonstrate fruitfulness, growth, change, sanctification, Christ-likeness? Am I becoming more like Jesus each and every day? Do I look more like him today than I did yesterday, than I did the day before? Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Does sanctification mean that that we never take steps back? No, it doesn't. Oftentimes, sanctification is four steps forward and one step back, and three steps forward and two steps back. But the, the progression, the trajectory of life for a person who is in Jesus Christ, who has been united to Christ by faith alone, is growth. We will be growing. We will be bearing fruit. And so we just have to look at the limbs of our life and do some evaluating, which is a very good thing, by the way. Paul told us to examine ourselves. To examine ourselves, why? Well, to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. How do we know if we're in the faith? Well, beyond the leaves, there's fruit. There's fruit. We're growing. We're changing. Looks a little bit different in in each individual life, but fruit nonetheless Growth, nonetheless. Change, nonetheless. A growing love for Christ, nonetheless. A growing hatred for sin, nonetheless. Absolutely none of that was in my notes. Uh, let, me, let me find my spot back here now. <laughs> uh, all right, here we go. Jesus' response. Look back at your Bible. Look at how Jesus responds here. Jesus answers his disciples... Specifically, Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, look, Jesus, the the, the tree you cursed yesterday has withered. Jesus responds, Jesus answers, saying, have faith in God. Have faith in God. This is an interesting response. And it gives us insight into the meaning of the fruitless fig tree. So, in other words, the text that we have this morning is is the lesson explained to the disciples of what the whole fig tree incident meant. All right? Jesus' disciples saw him curse the fig tree, and today Jesus is explaining exactly what took place and exactly what it means. And I think the first lesson that Jesus wants us to realize here is we've got to be growing in the fruit of faith in God. Your faith ought to be growing 
That is one of the specific fruits that Jesus did not see in Israel, but must accompany the converted individual's life. There's a growing measure of faith. A growing measure of faith in God. While Israel was barren of true faith, Jesus charged his disciples and subsequently us today to display the fruit of faith in God. The Greek word here for faith is pistis. carries the idea of a firm persuasion, a settled assurance, or a very strong conviction. When you think, well, what does faith mean? Is it, a, is it a nebulous definition? Is it subjective? No, it's absolutely not subjective. It's very objective. What does it mean? Well, to have faith means I have a firm persuasion. I have a settled conviction. I have a sure assurance. What Jesus is emphasizing here to his disciples is that we are, followers of Christ, are to have, to exhibit a moment-by-moment, daily, continual faith in God. That we're not to waver, we're not to vacillate. We are to have a moment-by-moment, day-by-day, continual faith in God. To be trusting in God. That is to live in an attitude of dependence upon him. The writer of Hebrews tells us, and without faith it is impossible to please God. Did you catch that one word there? It is impossible to please God without faith in him. Without a firm persuasion, without a settled assurance, without a strong conviction in his goodness, in his nature, his character, and his attributes, you can't please him. You can't please him. Because obedience to him is born out of faith in him. Catch that? Obedience to him is born out of faith in him. So we can't please him. It's impossible to please him without faith. It's impossible. Faith that rests in God is an unwavering trust in his omnipotent power and his unfailing goodness. When you think about God, which is the most important thing you can do, by the way. A.W. Tozer said the most important thing that can come into your mind is the first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God. Do you think about his omnipotent power? Do you think about his unfailing goodness? Jesus is teaching his disciples that if they would escape the similar fate of judgment that was impending upon Israel, that they too and we too must continue to trust in God. This is a message for Christ's people in every age. Jesus now proceeds to apply the lesson of trusting God, and he does it by way of communicating some prayer directives. Jesus says, you must trust in God. Now, as it pertains to prayer, Jesus says, here is how. Here is how that applies. That's what we'll look at here. Write this down, number two, if you're taking notes. God is powerful. Not only is he trustworthy, and are we called to have faith in him, but God is powerful. He can move mountains. Our God is powerful without limit. The only thing God cannot do is lie, die, or deny himself. Everything else. 
according to his divine and sovereign will and prerogative, is on the table. He is omnipotent. He is powerful. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, or as a result, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. It will be yours. Well, there are a few particulars that I want to draw to your attention here. There are a few specific things concerning prayer, pertaining to prayer, that I want to draw to your attention here as we're thinking about our powerful, omnipotent, mountain-moving God and how we are to approach him in prayer. Number one, write this down, or A there on your outline, is you must remember who God is. Remember who he is. I might submit to you that among many others, Mark eleven twenty three is possibly one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. Again, there are others, but oftentimes misunderstood. What does it mean to say to a mountain, which, by the way, uh, Jesus is probably pointing here when he's speaking. He's probably pointing to the Mount of Olives, which would have been very visible there to his disciples. Be taken up and thrown into the sea. And he probably swung that arm over to the Dead Sea. This mountain, the Mount of Olives. To be uprooted, to be plucked up, and to be thrown into that sea. What does that mean? What are we to make of this? Is Jesus calling Christians to literally throw mountains around? All 517 trillion whatever it was, Mount Everest? No. No, that's, that's not the case. And if it were the case, where would we put them, by the way? All right? What would that accomplish? Even if we could move the mountains, literally, where would we put them? I would submit that they're put right where they need to be. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole here. Hyperbole is exaggeration. Okay, Jesus is, is using exaggerated uh, phraseology uh, in order to arrest the attention of his disciples. Remember, Jesus is a master teacher, right? And so Jesus speaks in such a way, teaches in such a way as to absolutely grab, to arrest, to capture the attention of those whom he is teaching. Here it is the disciples. And so Jesus is using hyperbole here to emphasize a very important lesson. The lesson isn't that we need to move physical mountains. The lesson is that we need the power of God to live and to meet the daily mountains of our lives. I'll help explain that here in just a second, those daily mountains of our lives. I'll give you some, some examples of some mountains. But in Jewish imagery, a mountain, when you're speaking about a mountain, it, it signified something that was strong and immovable. These were oftentimes understood as problems that stand in the way or seemingly impossible situations, things that you cannot humanly do. Okay, that's, that's what we're thinking about here when we're talking about mountains. These are things that, that only God can do. Mountains only God can move. And friends, he's able. He's able. 
If he put them where they stand, he can move them. He is able. And he can move mountains in your life as well. Those seemingly impossible situations, those, those difficulties and those circumstances that seem to be insurmountable and that stand as a roadblock in the way, those things that you in and of your own self cannot humanly do, God is able. But we've got to remember who God is. Who God is. In the prayers of the Bible, the most frequent form of recognition as far as God is concerned, is the recognition of his power in creation. Let me, let me just turn your attention there for a second. Before I share with you some examples of what mountains in your life might look like, let me just reorient your thinking, your heart and your mind, for a brief moment here, to the God of creation. You see, when early Christians approached God in prayer, they oftentimes began by saying things like this. This is David praying at the dedication of the gifts at the temple, and he addressed God saying, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Boy, if we reorient our thinking to God like that before we kneel and pray to him, it will change the way you pray, I guarantee it. Oftentimes we pray, we, we pray with our circumstances on our mind. We pray with difficulties blinding our sight. Friends, get your eyes, and I am included here. I am so quick to get my eyes on myself in the present. Get your eyes off of you. Get them on the mountain moving, God, the God of all creation. Nehemiah, at the prayer, at the reading of the law, he addressed the people saying, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. He's not limited. He's from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and above all praise. You're the great high God. You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and with all their host, host, and the earth, and all that is in it, and the seas, and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, and all the host of heaven worships you. That's the God you pray to. God is great. He's high and lofty, the one who inhabits eternity, yet he invites us to come before him with our prayers. The mountains that God is able to move, or the mountains, I think, that are in view here, are primarily the mountains that reside in your and my heart. I would submit to you that God is much more concerned about removing mountains in our hearts than he is about removing obstacles in our circumstances. Let me rewind that statement. It's important. I would submit to you that God is much more concerned about removing mountains in your heart than he is about removing obstacles in your circumstances. But oftentimes, all we're concerned about or what we're primarily concerned about is that God would move my circumstances, that God would change my circumstances. Not God, would you change my heart? And if you so will, if you so desire, if it so pleases you, if it brings you the most glory to change my circumstances, I trust you. 
I trust you. Maybe some of you are here this morning and the mountain that is in front of you is a struggling marriage. And you just can't in your human finiteness seem to fathom how the Lord is going to work out the difficulties in your marriage relationship. Friends, let me just remind you who your God is. Get your eyes off your circumstances and get your eyes on him. The one who longs and desires to restore. The one who is glorified by bringing healing to brokenness. What about the mountain of taming your tongue? Boy, that stings a little bit for me, right? Actually, let me, that stings a lot for me. I mean, here it is, this, this small piece of equipment here that fits inside our lips and our teeth and our, and our gums, but yet that little instrument has the ability to set a forest ablaze. You might think, God, I, 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 I struggle to bring that tongue into a stall where it glorifies and honors you, where it's bridled by you, where it's tamed by, I know I can't tame it, but you can. You can. You can change my heart and therefore change my tongue. You know your tongue connected to your heart, right? You know the old kid song, you know, your knee bone's connected to your thigh bone, your thigh bone, whatever. You know, you know it's like, well, your, your tongue bone's connected to your heart bone. Everybody knows that. that. Yes? Give me some affirmation here. Okay. Out of an overflow of the heart, the what? The mouth speaks. Luke 6, 45. God, change my heart and then change my tongue. How about the mountain of discouragement? How about the mountain of parenting a difficult or a wayward child? God, I, I, don't, I don't see... I can't see past my circumstances. I can't see how this set of circumstances or this situation is going to be changed. Just can't see beyond it. How about the mountain of lust? Man, let me get your attention here. Not that the ladies don't struggle with lust. They absolutely do. This is not confined to a specific gender. But men, this is a mountain that the Lord needs to uproot in many of our lives. What takes place between your ears is massively important. What takes place in the still and the quiet of your own heart is massively important. And we need to remember that God sees it all, he knows it all, nothing is hidden from God's sight, the writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 4, 13. We're all laid naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. But God can move that mountain. God can change desires. How about the mountain of resentment or anger or unforgiveness? We'll talk more about that here in just a few minutes. How about the mountain of people-pleasing? Anybody a people-pleaser? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Come on. Every single one of us have an inordinate desire to please people. Matter of fact, pleasing people oftentimes is more important to us than pleasing God. If you please God, it matters not whom you displease. Likewise, if you displease God, it matters not whom else you please. How about the mountain of fear and worry? 
How about the mountain of pride? How about the mountain of conversion? Maybe this is connected back to some of those wayward and difficult children. Maybe this is connected to the person that works uh, right next to you, shares an office next to you, or lives right next door to you. God can save a person. He can pull them out of the, the muck and the mire. He can remove that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, cause them to be born again to a new and living hope. Friends, let me tell you this. As a believer in Jesus Christ, armed with Jesus' words here, which we all are, not a one of us can come to any one of these mountains and just say, I just, just, can't, I just can't do it. I just can't tame the tongue. I, I just can't do it. I, I, I just can't please God in my marriage. I, I just can't do it. No, friends, that's not an option. You, you can't say that. You can't say, I, I, can't, I can't conquer this thing by God's grace and through God's power. You, you can't say that. Jesus makes it plain as day that we can't say that. Paul reminds us, now to him who is able to do abundantly more than all we ask or think according to his power that works within us. Friends, I would submit to you that our prayers are the link between our needs and the inexhaustible resources of God. Remember who God is, okay? B, and a bit briefer here, ask without doubting. Ask without doubting. That's what Jesus says here. Back, look back at verse 23. And does not doubt in his heart... So we pray, we ask God, the mountain-moving God, remembering who he is, getting my eyes rightly fixed on him, okay? And then I don't doubt in my heart. I don't doubt in my heart. I mean, we don't struggle with it? Absolutely not. But we're called to repent of it and forsake it. Doubt in God is sin. The word doubt here means to make a distinction or to judge between two things. In this case, it would mean to have a divided judgment or a wavering hesitation as it pertains to God. A divided judgment. Well, I don't know, God, will you? I don't know, God, will you not? It's like the spin cycle. Back and forth, back and forth. It's like, hey, God's character is settled. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and for all eternity. All of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We don't have to sit in the spin cycle of, of doubt with a divided judgment, a wavering hesitation. Friends, how often do we treat God with suspicion? How often do we struggle to trust God's word is true? How often do we question his care and his concern for us? Often. Often. Charles Spurgeon once said, There is only one creature that God has ever made who doubts him. The sparrows do not doubt. They sweetly sing at night as they go to their roosts, though they know not where tomorrow's meal shall be found. The very cattle trust him, even in the days of drought. Have you ever seen them when they pant for thirst, how they expect the water? The angels never doubt him, nor the devils. The devils believe and tremble. But that was left for man, the most favored of all God's creatures, to mistrust him. 
Do you believe him? Do you take him at his word? Friends, he's given you his word from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Take him at his word. Take him at his word. He is faithful and true. Faithful and true. We oftentimes pray from a heart of doubt. We oftentimes draw back from the word of God. We say things in our heart like this, though we'd never say them with our mouths, probably. I know that God has said this, but I don't believe him in this matter. Doubt, God, doubt calls God's character and ability into question. Doubt says, God, uh, you may have promised this, but I don't believe you'll do it. James tells us, James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. James says, but let him ask in faith without doubting. Ask in faith without doubting. Why? Because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Why? Because he or she is double-minded and unstable in all their ways. Take God at his word. Ask without doubting. See, write this down. Ask according to God's will. Ask according to God's will. Look at verse 23 again, this next phrase. We must believe that what he, that is God, says will come to pass. Not what I say, not what I want, not what I will, not what I wish, but what he says will come to pass. John encourages us. This is one of my uh, favorite verses. First uh, John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. 1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, this is the confidence. Let me press pause right there. I love that word, by the way. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Did you catch that phrase? Anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that we have that which we've asked of him. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that we have that which we asked of him. And so, friends, how do we know the will of God? If we are to pray the will of God, how do we come to know the will of God? Well, in order to know the will of God, we must know the word of God. Don't suppose that you know the will of God if you are not very well acquainted with the word of God. Let me just make a plug here for some sort of daily quiet or devotional time. It's time that you set aside with your Bible, a piece of paper, and a pen, and you just meet with the Lord. Day after day after day, month after month after month, year after year after year of taking God's word in and letting your heart and your mind be marinated with the truth of God's inspired, infallible, inerrant, trustworthy word. It will change you. You will doubt less in your latter years than you do in your early years because you will see the faithfulness of God in relation to his word. How do you know the will of God? Is it God's will that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? It is. Is it God's will that you love your neighbor as yourself? It is. Is it God's will that you speak words that are upbuilding and uplifting and not words that tear down? It is. Is it God's will that you abstain from sexual immorality? It is. Is it God's will that you pray and thank God continually and without ceasing? It is. We could go on and on and on. 
How do I know God's will? I must know God's word. Become very well acquainted with God's word. Pray biblical prayers, by the way. I mean, pull out Paul's prayers and others and pray those. Pray God's word and you will pray God's will. D, ask believing that you have received. Ask believing that you have received. This is dangerous. Okay? Look at verse 24. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Okay, that needs some qualification. Okay, this is not a blank check here uh, to ask whatever I want and demand that I receive whatever I want. We must be very careful with this verse. As a matter of fact, a whole theology based almost exclusively on this text has permeated the, quote, Christian world today. It's the word of faith movement. It's the name it, claim it movement. Tells us that all we have to do to receive something is to claim it in Jesus' name and it'll be ours. That's not what Jesus is saying here. How do we know that something is ours if God has told us it is ours? If God has told us that it is ours... Hey, you want to know what's yours, by the way? I, go back this week. If you're looking for a quiet time passage or a section, a chunk of scripture to study, go back this week and study Ephesians chapter 1. And just study all that has been given to you in Jesus. And friends, let me tell you, everything you read there in Ephesians 1, you can claim it as your own, if you know Jesus savingly. You can claim it as your own. can believe that you have received it. It is true. Ask believing that you have received if you're praying God's will. How do I know God's will? I know God's word. Okay? E here. Ask that God might be glorified. We're going to land the plane here. Ask that God might be glorified. This is not specifically in our text, but this is the theme of all scripture. Our lives ought to be pointed at, aimed at, glorifying the Lord. Our prayer lives should demonstrate a total consciousness of our need and a sense of our complete inadequacy, along with a sense of God's complete adequacy and a willingness when we pray. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying a hold of God's ever-present willingness A prayer is not for an emergency only to be used when we get in a pinch and we just need somebody to come and bail us out. That's not a God-glorifying view of prayer. Prayer is not an Aladdin's lamp or, or the rubbing of a genie or the trip to a wishing well for our wants. That's not glorifying to God. Prayer is not the means by which you con God into something by cunning some sort of blasphemous deal with him. That's not God glorifying. We don't use a, a prayer to hire God to get done what we want done or to get our own way. No, we should pray, God, have your own way. That glorifies him. Not my will, finish the sentence, but your will be done. Jesus modeled that for us. You want to glorify God in your prayer life? Pray, not my will, but your will be done. I will be satisfied. I will be joyful in your will, 
Three, God is forgiving. And it should be noted here that he who has been forgiven much forgives much. God has forgiven us, and uh, we are also called to forgive those who sin against us. Let me direct your attention briefly here to verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now, uh, let me try to connect some dots super briefly here. If the first fruit that Jesus did not see in the nation of Israel, that he is encouraging the disciples and subsequently us to bear in our lives, if that first fruit is the fruit of faith in God, the second fruit that Jesus did not see is the fruit of forgiveness. It's the fruit of faith and the fruit of forgiveness. The fruit that God is looking for here in our text is true fellowship with God by faith and true fellowship with our brothers by forgiveness. If I'm fruitless in either area, my prayers will be hindered. Okay? I cannot and should not expect that God answer my prayers if I'm not rightly related to him by faith and I'm not rightly related to my brothers and my sisters through him by forgiveness. J.C. Ryle notes here, he says, we have no right to look uh, to God for mercy if we're not ready to extend mercy to our brothers. We cannot really feel the sinfulness of the sins we ask to have pardoned if we cherish malice toward our fellow brothers in our heart. We must have the heart of a brother toward our neighbor on earth if we wish our Father in heaven forgive us. We must not flatter ourselves that we have the spirit of adoption if we cannot bear and forbear our brothers and sisters. Okay? The fruit of forgiveness. If you're harboring resentment, anger, malice, unforgiveness in your heart, deal with that. Deal with it first vertically. Repent. It is sin. Repent of that and then go make things right with your brother or sister. I think a lot of times we think, oh, time. Time will make things go away. No, grace, repentance, and forgiveness uh, makes uh, sin in our relationship. Uh, it, it allows us to deal with it properly. So in a nutshell, here's the text here. Here's, here's the text in a nutshell. Nothing is impossible. If it is within the scope of God's will and requested by faith in the context of prayer from a loving and forgiving heart. How are we doing there, friends? Do we have fruit on the vine of faith in God? Do we have the fruit of forgiveness toward our brothers and sisters? I hope so, and I hope that it's growing in increasing measure. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word here. So much goodness here. Lord, I pray that you would convict where we need to be convicted. I pray that you would encourage where we need to be encouraged. I pray that you would bind up where we need to be bound up, Lord. I pray that you would shine the spotlight of your word, the revealing, searching light of your word upon our hearts, uh, that we might bear more resemblance to Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would do heart work in us. Even as we leave here, I pray the sermon does not uh, stop here, Lord, but I pray that your word your authoritative, sufficient, and errant, God-breathed word uh, will go from this place in the hearts of your people and you will continue to minister this preached word, your word, in the hearts of your people uh, and bring about more conformance to, or conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.